Good evening, good day, everybody. I hope you're all doing very well, and welcome back to the Ask Abhijit Show. It's episode one seventy that we are on. Um, first of all, I would like to thank you all for uh, for helping the channel reach eight hundred thousand, eight lakh subscribers. It's all thanks to you. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I really value your viewership. So thank you so much. And uh, yeah i hope you're all doing very well it's been a it's been a while a couple of weeks two three weeks since i did this so it's great to be back on the live stream and to restart the show it's not a re- really ended but yeah there we are so let me see who all is there on the live chat i can see tejas hi uh, echo rishabh rajput kushti in blood mahitej g sai siddharth shri shram shri ram upadhyay Devan Shravel, Midnight Stalker, Nirvana Green Day fan, Sushrut, Thakur Pavan Kumar Singh Bais, Dungar Singh Johan, welcome back, sir. Uh, Atharva Abhinav SG, Arjun Nandakishor Tiwari, That One M8, Prajna Paramita, Harshit Badoria, Alpha Metzlas, Shashank Gaurav Naik, Onizuka Ekichi. <laughs> Harsh, uh, Yash Jain, Vivek Kumar, Milin Dandekar, Siddharth, Ritesh, Om Bekerikar, Apratihat Singh, Nabishik Srivastav, Dutch Vanderlinde, God of Thunder, VS Big Tree, Mazar Chacher, hello, Viraj Joglekar, Pratyush, who else, who else is there? Jeet, Geet G, Kuldeep, Ani, Ani Rudhaparte, Best Thing. Raja Sekaran, Influencing World, Shri Kantelang, Shashank Smash, Priyanka Jaiswar, Jitu, Shripad, Sir Whitemeat, SG, Kels, Aman Vakil, Piyush, Raju, Sagar, Bonsoir, Dhanashri, Matthew Perez, and, and so many other people. So I will not be able to greet you all individually by name, but uh, thank you so much for being on the live stream. And uh, with that, let us get into the questions. So let's go. Ask me your questions. I'm going to take questions from the live stream, uh, from the live chat only, uh, so that there is more interactivity and you can get, I mean, lots of you often say that when I select questions from the comments, many of your questions aren't taken. So maybe this will give you the opportunity to ask questions and maybe I can pick up some of some more of those. So there we are. And with that, let's take some questions. So let's go. Uh, fire questions and I'll take as many as possible. Okay, let's begin with something that is... Uh, about physics we haven't done that for in a while so siddharth singh rajpuro it says tell us something about the andromeda and milky way collision theory well it's not a theory it's a fact it's observational evidence you know uh, the andromeda galaxy is the closest galaxy to the milky way and to us right we can see it with the naked with, with the naked eye it's kind of faint and blurry but it's visible to the naked eye if it if the galaxy was a little bit brighter it would be larger than the moon when the moon shines in the sky the andromeda galaxy would be larger but it's it's far it's faint and that's why it's not that visible people may not really pay attention to it but it's there it's there in the night sky it's visible and we know from measurements of blue shift red shift all that you know that the galaxy is coming closer and closer it's moving towards us and based on the distance that it's moving towards us which we can calculate by the blue shift which see what's blue shift what's red shift it's the doppler effect applied to light applied to photons so when something, you know the Doppler effect, right? When a train is coming towards you, the whistle, the the, the siren, it sounds higher pitched. And it's when it's moving away from you, it sounds lower pitched. And similarly, the same thing can happen to light. The same thing applies to light, wavelengths, frequencies, all that. 
So we can tell that the Andromeda galaxy from the blue shift uh, that we see when we you know take light measurements, we can see that it's coming towards us and we can measure how fast it's coming. So it is coming towards us. The, the two galaxies, the Milky Way and the Andromeda, Andromeda is slightly larger. The two galaxies are coming towards each other. They're moving towards each other because of the force of gravity and because they are they are so close or close together, the uh, expansion of the universe is not able to counteract the, the two galaxies coming together. Okay, so eventually, I don't know how, how long it will take, but in a billion, two billion years or so, whatever it is, I don't remember the exact number right now, but the two galaxies will eventually not collide, but they will merge. There will be no collision. There will be no hard smashing collision. Galaxies are mostly empty space, you know. So the galaxies will will come together. They'll they'll merge. There'll be this dance, this cosmic gravitational galactic dance. Some stars will be flung around and all that. But eventually, after another billion years or so, there'll be a settled. The things will settle down so somewhat, and you'll have a much larger merged galaxy that will emerge out of this. And the name that's been been given to it is Milkomeda, or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, that's what's going to happen. It's not a theory. We know it's happening. The two galaxies are moving closer up together as we speak. Right now, as we speak, it's happening. It's not a theory. It's going to happen. So that's in brief about the eventual, not collision, but merger of these two galaxies, which is like way in the future. We don't have to worry about it. Not going to happen in our lifetime. So hopefully, if humans are around, they'll be. if humans are still around in a billion years or whatever time it takes, we're going to be very different from what we are today. And our descendants will think of us as the way we think about... Homo erectus or whatever, right? Like almost monkey-like primitive creatures. Yeah. So that's uh, that's about that. Now let's see other questions. Um, was cousin marriage prevalent in Bharat during the time of the epics? You mean the Ramayana and the Mahabharat? Well, um, that's something I'm not really sure about. I'm not sure cousin marriage is something that was very prevalent in India at any given point in time. In certain sections of society in the subcontinent, cousin marriage is kind of prevalent today. I think it is not uh, something that's uh, advisable from a medical genetic perspective. A cousin is rather close genetically, right? I mean, it's a cousin. So, yeah, I'm about the Vedic period, about the uh, Ramayana Mahabharata period, I'm not really sure. If there was any such thing, uh, I think cousin marriage, this this custom, which is a fringe custom in the subcontinent, not in all areas, in some areas of the subcontinent, Pakistan, let's say, it's kind of quite prevalent. So clearly, it it came into India from outside, from a different culture, right? So I don't think it's it's ever been part of our culture. Uh, so I'm not sure if it was ever prevalent in India before the uh, Turkic invasions. Um, so yeah, that's what I can say. I'm, I'm not. It's not a question that I've ever pondered on or thought about. So yeah, that's what I can say. I'm assuming it wasn't there. I'm assuming it wasn't prevalent. I, it's quite sure that it's quite clear that it this this custom entered into India via the Turkic invasions. You know, that, that was the medium. That was a vector by which this thing entered India. And I don't think uh, it's really prevalent in India. It's definitely prevalent in Pakistan. And the, you see that the Pakistani population has all these birth defects and all, which come, comes from inbreeding. I mean, you marry your own cousin and you have kids with him or her, you're going to have defective, you're going to have defects in your offspring. And I mean, that's that's just 
genetics you know it's just m- standard medicine that's what you the, what you taught in your mbbs or whatever so yeah you see that in pakistan i mean the quality of the genetic uh, the, the genes is isn't isn't great because of this so yeah all right let's take another question um um back to nature uh put some light on quantum healing techniques becoming prevalent in the scientific world now there is no such thing i'm, I'm sorry to burst this bubble there is no such thing as quantum healing or quantum consciousness or quantum whatever uh, typically when you hear this sort of terminology it's it's the sign of uh, somebody trying to pull the wool over your eyes you know this new age all this stuff uh, i'm going to heal you through quantum methods and all no that's not how it works see the, the world we live in is a macroscopic world it's not a it, all of the properties of the universe that we inhabit they seem apart from the gravitational thing okay all of the other properties of the world arise from the laws of quantum mechanics for example if you hold a crystal in your hand it's a purely macroscopic quantum object but well our skin our clothing the world around us it's macroscopic it, it obeys the laws of newtonian mechanics but there is a quantum element to it as well because everything emerges from that but quantum healing quantum consciousness all of that that is uh, voodoo hand waving nonsense i'm sorry if if it upsets some people but that's simply a fact okay i mean i do know about what quantum physics is what quantum mechanics is and what it is not there is no such thing as quantum healing so this is not prevalent in the scientific world it's prevalent in the pseudo scientific world okay uh, that's the long and the short of it so yeah if it upsets some people i do not mean to upset you but facts simply are facts unfortunately uh all right uh Okay. Okay, Surjakanta L, please say something about Mizoram international border with Myanmar. What's happening? It's a mess. Yeah, good question. Uh, good question, and I'm not sure if I should talk about this, but yeah, let me give you a brief overview of what's happening. This is a sensitive matter. this is a sensitive geopolitical matter it's not a local thing that's happening it's a geopolitical thing okay so to understand what's happening we have to look at the map here we are the map is back so uh let me put the map on the screen and then we will talk here's the map so in case some of you are not aware where mizoram is where where myanmar is well you have to look at india's far east which everyone calls the northeast because of colonial reasons and then you have the state of mizoram and manipur these two states this is where all the well that's where the mess is and it's not mizoram that's messed up it's manipur that's messed up manipur i mean half of manipur at least is under foreign occupation essentially okay and understand why this is happening this is not something the current government is this mess has not been created by the current government this mess has been created by the incredibly retarded policies that the indian former indian governments previous indian governments have implemented since 1947 okay so the mess is because of that and of course it it all started in the 1850s or thereabouts with the british occupiers of india they messed this place up so what's happening right now there is a government in myanmar okay it is a military government it's you could say the military junta they, they call it 
people think of it as the junta. It's not the junta, it's the junta. That's the term, J-U-N-T-A. It's a Spanish term. So you have a military dictatorship in Myanmar, okay? And you have various forms of resistance to this military dictatorship. So we have, and then you have the Chin state. The Chin state is something that borders Mizoram. And that's where you have the uh, Chinese origin people who live there, okay? These people are the Chinzo ethnic group, also known as the Cookies, also known as the Zomi and the Mizos, all right? This is a Chinese origin ethnic group. They originated somewhere in the Yunnan region or beyond in present-day China. And they somehow in the past, uh, in the recent few centuries, they moved into this region. And these Qin, Zou, Kuki, Zou, Zou, Mi people, whatever they are, this entire grouping of uh, individuals, these people, they are not Burmese. Okay, They are mainly located in Burma, but they are not Burmese. They do not practice Burmese culture. They don't speak the Burmese language and they are fighting the Burmese government. Okay, And they want to create a nation of their own. And these are the people who have, during colonization, British occupation of the region, because the British also occupied Burma. So during the British occupation of this region, they converted these people to Christianity. So they're all Christians and they want to create a nation in Christ. And they're fighting the government of Burma, but they're also fighting the government of Bangladesh and the government of India. Okay, This is a separatist movement and it has funding from somewhere. Okay, let's, let's call it somewhere. Funding is coming in. They're getting arms, ammunition, social media support. They're getting leadership support. I mean, coordination, all that from somewhere. And not from this region. Okay, that's what's happening. Now, the Burmese government, the military government is obviously fighting against these people because they want to carve out a separate country from this region. And the fighting is happening close in the Chin state. Chin state. Uh, let's see if we can Chin state Myanmar. Let's see if we can get a... Yeah, it's... Okay, you can see it now. It's highlighted over here. So this is the region where much of the fighting is happening. And there's other fighting happening near the Chinese border as well, the Yunnan border and all. So it's a big mess, okay? The government of Myanmar is not in total control of the country. Chin state, apparently, it looks like they have mostly evicted the government of Myanmar. So there is fighting happening there. The Myanmar's government is sometimes using the air force to bomb these uh, separatists and all that. And when this happens, there is this influx of people they call them refugees, apparently, who move into the Indian border, who move across the border into India. Much of it is happening in Mizoram. And then what the government of Mizoram does is that it doesn't uh, take the biometrics of these people, even though the central government has told them they have refused to do it. So the Mizoram government is not taking biometrics. And what they are doing is that they are simply pushing these people north into Manipur. And then these so-called refugees, they set up villages in Manipur and they say that we are cookies. And then they, they are given scheduled tribe or whatever status, and then they take over the land. So over half of Manipur is occupied by these people. And we know that they are fighting a terrorist insurgency against the native people of Manipur. Over half of Manipur is under foreign terrorist occupation. All right. So, so that's what's happening right now. That's as much as I will say. And yeah, I, so it's it's uh, there is no short-term solution to this. When you have... 8 to 10 lakh foreign squatters on your territory, it's not going to be easy to evict them. It's going to take at least a decade or two. This problem was created over a century, maybe more than a century. 
it started in the 1850s or so okay after the british started occupying these territories uh, when the kingdom of manipur lost its sovereignty when they had to accommodate british political agents on their soil that's when this influx started okay so the king of manipur the kings of manipur in those days were forced to start giving land to these foreign settlers and the government of india after 1947 after 1949 when manipur became uh, part of india the government of india was completely clueless about the far east of india what which we call the northeast so they simply continued the british policies of punishing the indigenous people of manipur by settling foreigners okay and that's how and in the last decade it looks like almost half a million more terrorists have come and settled down so that's in an ongoing problem this is going to take time to solve and these individuals let's whatever they are the zomi people or whatever they want a separate nation and they have tremendous international funding and backing i mean they are a ragtag bunch of illiterates okay who have no allegiance to any nation but they are very well coordinated they are very well funded they have inexhaustible apparently inexhaustible supplies of ammunition and arms and they have a lot of support if you see from certain quarters which is visible on social media in certain reports put out by think tanks and all that so this is a, a geopolitical issue okay this is designed to destabilize india to set the far east of india on fire and also to destabilize china that's so the weird part of it in the past the chinese have funded and fomented a uh, separatist insurgencies all across the far east of india the northeast of india you have i can share images if i google them of of in of separatist leaders at the great wall of china at the so called great wall of china the chinese have done this for a long time but right now this what's happening right now i don't think i i may be wrong but the sense i get is that the chinese may not really be involved in this particular thing although they'll be happy about it and they may want to explore avenues of how to how to use this against india but this most likely doesn't have too much of a chinese hand in it somebody else and somebody more powerful is probably behind this and that's all i will say about this as of now okay um let us uh, see some other questions i mean ah <laughs> aryan dathor asks are we close to the third world war okay so let's examine the flashpoints in the world right what are the the where is the world messed up let's let's once again go to the map because that's what we do on this channel so here's the map of the world the globe so where are the geopolitical flashpoints right now well we know that there's a conflict brewing and ongoing simmering in the middle east the israel versus hamas and hezbollah conflict right we have that now that's kind of simmering right now it's not a very hot conflict it's kind of going the slow war route once again the israelis have some presence in gaza and all that and they've captured certain you know places and they seem to be intent on eventually wiping out hamas uh, so that's something that's going on there is uh, some involvement of hezbollah in lebanon as well in this so there is a conflict here in the middle east and the americans have deployed two uh, aircraft carrier strike groups in this region one in the mediterranean sea the other one in the sea of saurashtra which is erroneously called the arabian sea okay 
but uh, Tehran is out of range for some reason. So they have deployed essentially the largest naval task force since the Second World War. As a warning to everyone not to go, not to cross certain lines. So the Middle East is kind of stabilized right now. The other big flashpoint is Ukraine. Once again, we are witnessing a very slow war there, right? Putin, Mr. Putin, we know what his objective is. His objective is to denazify and de whatever eyes <laughs> Ukraine, de denazify Ukraine. And obviously to effect a regime change in Kiev to get rid of the uh, puppet Zelensky and install his own puppet there, okay? And maybe capture some territory. So he is eminently capable of doing that, but he is choosing not to, okay? When the war began in February 22, right, the Russian forces were on the outskirts of Kiev, but they pulled back. And that's a whole story which I will not go into right now. But even Mr. Putin is going the slow, is, is taking the slow war route because he's simply waiting for the funding to dry up for Ukraine and then he can just walk in. And he's prepared to wait as long as it takes. He is not in a hurry. Okay. So it may take another three years, another five years, who knows? So it'll go on. So it's a it's kind of frozen conflict right now. And we'll see how the Israel thing also goes. That's another potential frozen conflict. Well, the Middle East is a frozen conflict. It's always in crisis and it's all because of external factors, as we know, as, as, as my regular viewers would know. There's another flashpoint in the Taiwan region. There's another flashpoint, as we know, in the India-Tibet border, the undemarcated India-Tibet border, which ranges all the way from Kashmir and Ladakh all the way to Arunachal Pradesh, right? That's another long, major flashpoint. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of it. What else do we have? We have tensions in Africa. The Cold War has moved to Africa. There have been coups in the Sahel region, in the coup belt of Africa. Uh, which we have discussed. So yeah, so that's the situation right now. I don't think we are really close to a global global conflagration of World War III, but we aren't very far from it also. It, it will only take a couple of major mistakes or just one major mistake from somebody to set off something very big. So yeah, that's the deal. So I, I, I'm personally not of the opinion that we are very close to the Third World War. Uh, when the Ukraine conflict started, it, it looked like something could happen, but the Americans have wisely not put boots on the ground. They're using proxies. Ukraine is a proxy and other proxies also are there in the line. So pipeline. So yeah, as long as it's a proxy conflict, it's not going to cross certain lines. The Israel issue also is kind of simmering down. There was talk earlier of Israel potentially having to resort to the last use of, I mean, the Samson option, the use of nuclear weapons. That would cause, I mean, retaliation from other nuclear powers, potentially Iran. Iran may possibly have nukes, possibly. Okay, So right now it's it's kind of under control, but the tension, the, the conflict is always just below the surface. So I don't think we are very close to World War III. I hope it never happens, but there we are right now. Okay. Um, Simant Kukriti says, Israel and the U.S. have accused Iran of hampering the India-Middle East corridor, India-Middle East-Europe trade and transportation corridor, whereas the sword is loser in this is China. My thoughts. Okay, once again, let's go to the map. Here's the map. So the India-Middle East-Europe trade and transportation corridor was something that was agreed upon. It was, it was announced 
during the G20 summit, which happened a couple of months ago, in the last two months in New Delhi, I was there. So uh, it was announced and it was announced by the US. So the US has, has had thrown its full weight behind it. And this was supposed to be a trade and transportation corridor that would link India with the Middle East region, Oman, Saudi Arabia, all that. And this corridor would then go into Israel via Jordan, bypass Turkey and go into Greece. And this was going to be, it can still be a game changer when it comes to uh, trade and transportation. Uh, and it could be a big uh, alternative, a major and attractive alternative to the Chinese BRI, Belt and Road Initiative. And as we know, many nations in Europe are now pulling out of the BRI. The BRI hasn't really done much. I mean, the, Chi the, the Pakistan... Uh, leg of the BRI, the CPEC, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, has not really fructified. It hasn't really happened. It's not really going anywhere. And the one of the major problems for the for the BRI is the Ukraine conflict, because now the, the BRI, the build, all the infrastructure was supposed to pass through Ukraine. It's an enormous country in Europe, and because of the conflict, it's not happening. So the IMEC is a potential great alternative to the BRI and one that is attractive to lots of European nations because China is not involved. So uh, I'm not sure if Iran is behind this. I mean, who set off the Middle East conflict, which we are currently seeing? I mean, we know that Hamas and Hezbollah have very deep and very strong ties with Iran. Uh, so it is possible. But the sore loser in this is not China. If the IMEC doesn't happen, it's actually good for China. Right? So this is an evolving situation. It's still evolving as we speak. It's going to keep on changing. Uh, if the Israel conflict can simmer down, then the IMEC can still go ahead. The Saudis actually wanted this to happen within a month and a half of the announcement. They wanted the con construction of the infrastructure to start immediately. So Saudi Arabia is very bullish on this. Uh, Greece is bullish on this. Italy, during the during the G20 summit, Italy announced and informed the Chinese that they are pulling out of, of the BRI. It would have been great for Italy as well. So I think it, it can still go ahead. But as long as the IMEC doesn't happen, it's actually good for China. So that's the situation and it's going to keep evolving. Okay. Um... Okay, let's take a question from Tejas. Why did Mr. Gandhi not become the Prime Minister of Independent India? How did he become famous overnight after returning from Africa, from South Africa? Uh, so let's take the second question first. How did Mr. Gandhi become famous overnight after returning from South Africa? <laughs> so listen, when somebody becomes a superstar overnight, you, can, you have to understand it doesn't happen without a great amount of of, of groundwork and a great amount of, of media and other activities, you know, it's it doesn't happen overnight. It, it's, it's so hard for someone to become famous. There are so many people who desire fame, who crave fame, and they never become famous. And it, it upsets them so much. It hurts them. It's so painful. It, they, no matter how much they try, they don't get famous. And then there are some people who become famous overnight, magically. You cannot become famous. Unless, there are two ways of becoming famous. You either have to put in a lot of work for a long period of time, a decade, two decades, yeah? 
or you can accelerate this process using a certain fuel which is money now to become globally famous or let's say let's say how to become famous overnight in an enormous subcontinent sized nation like undivided india it would either take somebody a few decades of hard work or an enormous amount of money or the cooperation of the media and the government at that time the government was that of the british occupiers of india the british government of india the british occupation government of india yeah so how did he become overnight famous overnight that's something you know we need to look into history and ask examine these questions afresh and that's why i have been saying the things the the things i've been saying most likely the british wanted mr gandhi to take over the leadership of the, of the congress party the congress party itself was a creation of the british it was founded by alan hume who was a british official in occupied india the congress party was a british creation and they wanted most likely mr gandhi to become the overall leader of the congress party because they had observed his actions in south africa his activities in south africa for a quarter century i mean nearly 25 years right and they were confident that he would be a valuable asset for them uh so most likely that's the thing so once he came to india he was all the newspapers all the media started towering praise on him such a great freedom fighter from africa south africa who did such great work and when it's all over the newspapers and they constantly say the same things day in and day out the person becomes famous it doesn't take a lot and all the newspapers were controlled by obviously by the british government by the occupation government of india the british government so they would do what they were told so and and the congress leadership the congress party leadership well they also you know could have been controlled see the, the british created the congress party for a certain purpose they wanted to stage manage and control the freedom struggle in india they knew that there are they they learned the lessons of 1857 that this can very quickly go out of control and when the indians take up arms if the indians decide to take up arms and do or die it will take 24 to 48 hours to eliminate all foreign occupiers in india that's how long that's as long as it will take 24 to 48 hours so they had to give the indians the impression that there was this political movement freedom movement that was on their side that was fighting the british but they wanted to be it to be completely non violent and toothless so i think that explains things i mean you can read between the lines a little bit i i haven't let, left a lot to your imagination but that and why did mr gandhi not become pm of independent india because well it's always better to be behind the scenes and have more power you know when when in 1946 the vote happened in the congress party all the regional congress committees they came together and vote they decided to vote for the person who would become the first prime minister of uh, the dominion of india dominion status so then we know that everyone except varun to voted for sardar patel there were a couple of abstentions and then mr gandhi decided that he will go on a fast till, till death unless everybody agrees that mr nehru becomes the prime minister so he arm twisted everybody and mr nehru was made the prime minister of india 
despite not getting a single vote do you know that in 1947 when mr gandhi pulled off this coup he was not even a member of the congress party he was not a member of the congress party he had resigned earlier like several years earlier so a person who is not even a member of this political party had so much power over it that he forced it to go against its own democratic vote so he was the person behind the scenes who held the actual levers of power now i'll not go into details about how power works power is a very invisible thing it's very hard to comprehend okay but he was the real power in the congress party despite not being a member of the congress party he always wanted to be behind the scenes the real power who doesn't have any responsibility that the prime minister actually would have so imagine that you have a situation where one person is the official leader of a nation official leadership comes with a lot of restrictions and rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and then there is a person who holds the actual power but has no official position then that person is free to do anything so only those who understand power will get why sometimes it's better to be behind the scenes like when mr when the great vishnugupta chanakya was essentially the power in india true power in india even though chandragupta maurya was the official emperor of india that sort of thing so mr gandhi did not want to become prime minister he wanted to be the power behind the prime minister the real power in india so that's kind of how, how it was and probably the british also wanted mr nehru to be the prime minister he was a very um he was a great anglophile he was somebody they trusted and, and so on and so forth so so yeah that is the deal that is the deal all right all right okay <laughs> uh brian oblivion the whole indian revolution was kind of a farce to begin with a passive revolution that doesn't work without power behind you well that yeah i mean indians don't get this because indians have been indoctrinated by the education system in worshiping individuals yeah see it, it the same thing even goes for sport and all that indians don't really understand sports in great detail but they worship individuals and if you say something about that individual if you point out certain things factually they will ignore the facts and they'll attack you so uh, that's what happens so yeah the indian revolution was a farce after 1857 it was all stage managed by the british a passive non violent revolution i mean come on what kind of a joke is that but yeah i mean indians don't get it i mean the, that's what the education system has done to indians first of all it has created these uh, personality cults around people like around people like mr gandhi mr nehru and so on that these are god like figures you have to worship them don't question anything about them don't raise questions and secondly it's taken the education system has taken away the ability of indians to think critically indians simply don't know how to think the first thing what to do you do to take away someone's ability to think critically is to dissuade them from asking questions that's what that's what the indian education system does you don't ask questions you're not allowed to ask questions so then you simply take things at face value you stop asking questions and that's what happens you know so indians simply don't ask questions i mean thankfully there are people who are thinking differently now but it's still a long way to go so yeah i agree um all right uh, what else what else what else there are lots and lots of questions but let me um 
Jai Ved says, is this Xi Jinping's weakest phase as China's leader? What are the chances of him stepping down from the post of the general secretary or the overall leader of the CCP? I think Mr. Xi has really consolidated his power and his position in the Chinese Communist Party uh, apparatus. He has removed anybody who could be a potential threat or potential challenger to him. Uh, he has purged the army. There, there are people who disappear for the smallest of reasons. Yeah. I mean, the where is the defense minister of China? What happened to him? Where did he go? Hmm? What happened to the foreign minister? Apparently, he had an affair with some media lady. Come on. <laughs> as long as he does, he does his job properly, who cares? But, you know, these are all excuses, all pretexts to get rid of various individuals. You find some excuse and you get rid of them. So what Mr. Xi Jinping has done is that he has consolidated, consolidated power tremendously. So within the Chinese Communist Party, um, he has eliminated much of the opposition, any potential opposition. Even the hint of a dream of any anyone opposing him uh, has been removed. But obviously, there are smart people in the CCP. The CCP is a very tough environment, really, really tough environment. Dog, eat, dog, dog eats dog, that sort of thing. During his rise, Mr. Xi Jinping made lots and lots of enemies. I'm sure he has kept lists and he has uh, marginalized or, or purged most of them. But yeah. There will still be enemies. There will still be people who will look for the slightest chance of weakness or the slightest error and then something could happen. So I don't think it's his weakest phase as China's leader. But who knows what's brewing within the Chinese Communist Party? Who knows? Uh, there's When it comes to a dictatorship like China, there's always the possibility that anytime something could happen and the leader could be replaced. I mean, okay, let me give you a very bad example. <laughs> Uh, there's an organization in the U.S., a company called OpenAI. What happened yesterday? Sam Altman was was suddenly removed. He was fired. He was sacked from his position as the CEO. He's out. So these things can ho happen overnight. I'm, I, know, I know it's a bad example because this is not a dictatorship. One is a company in the U.S. and one is the Chinese dictatorship. But yeah, my, my point is things can happen suddenly. So I don't think it's the weakest phase of Xi Jinping. I, it may be his strongest phase, actually. But all it takes is one error, one mistake, or one setback. You make a you make a stupid error, everything comes crashing down. If Mr. Xi Jinping, let's say hypothetically, orders an invasion of Taiwan, or orders or, or starts a war with India, and things don't go well, then he looks weak. And in a nation like China, a dictatorship like China, the greatest sin is failure. Right in India, your leaders can fail hundreds of times. Nobody says anything. They're they're gods. I'm talking about people like Gandhi and Nehru and whoever else. They can fail, and maybe some other leaders in certain political parties in India today. I'm not taking names, so all right. But yeah, certain leaders can fail 78 times, and nobody says anything. They still worship them. In a place like China, one failure and you're out. So that's always a sword that hangs over the Chinese leaders, but. But that's what makes that nation and the party so ruthless and so efficient. But yeah, it's, it's dangerous and it's scary uh, if you're in there. Okay. Um, 
let's see what else. Okay, let us see this question. I haven't read it. The Aryan Vikram Singh. If the Aryan invasion, migration, tourism, etc. theory is wrong, and it was the Harappans who migrated eastward, then why do we see a decline in the Indus culture, such as the infrastructure, town planning, drainage system, etc.? Good question. We need to ask these questions and have them answered. So who are these Harappans? I mean, we are Harappans. We are the descendants of the Harappans, first of all. Okay. Um, okay. So, okay. Let's go back to, let's say, 5,000, 6,000 years before today. Five, 6,000 years before today, you had the great cities. Okay. Let's go to the map and check it, check out where this happened. So you had this great phase of India's civilization in the west, north and the west of India, okay? The uh, northernmost uh, Indus Valley or Harappan or whatever site, Saraswati Sindhu site, uh, archaeological site uh, that we have discovered is in northern Afghanistan, almost on the Tajikistan border, okay? And it uh, the southernmost uh, such archaeological sites are found in northern Maharashtra. This went all the way into Madhya Pradesh, uh, Madhya Pradesh and all the way west, almost into Iran enormous region okay where you had this flowering phase of in phase of indian civilization called the harappan phase saraswati sindhu phase sapta sindhu phase whatever you want to call it in this valley phase right so the greatest the the uh, the mature harappan phase so called so see the, the oldest archaeological site of the harappan phase is found in Birana in Haryana, that is about nine and a half thousand years old, almost 10,000 years old, okay? And the mature phase was around five, six thousand years before today. That's when you had the great metropolitan era. Everything was, it was a great urbanization of this entire region. And standardization, standardization of weights and measures and urbanization means great cities with multi-storied buildings and incredibly advanced uh, hydro engineering, drainage systems, flush toilets, um, you know, uh, technology and all that. And even the villages were like that, but not that big. So tremendous urbanization. There was a phase, okay? Uh, so the, the British and the Indian historians also called this the Indus Valley Civilization, Harappan Civilization, and so on and so forth. And this was centered around the rivers in western and northern India, northern western India, the Saptasindhu region, the seven rivers, out of which st six still exist, one has disappeared, but we can still find its dry riverbed, which was the greatest river of India, the largest river, the Saraswati, way bigger than the Sindhu, okay? Enormous river, the mother of floods and so on. So what happened is this. We know that these great cities were all abandoned eventually. Yeah, they are in ruins today. We still find the ruins and over 95% of the ruins have not even been excavated. Over 95% of the archaeological sites that are known to exist have not even been explored yet. And most of them are along the dry riverbed of the Saraswati. So why was all this abandoned? What happened? It's because of climate change, my friends. Climate change. About 8,000 years ago, uh, 6,000 BC or so, the Indian monsoon was way heavier than what it is today. And around 6000 BC, the Indian monsoon started declining monotonically, means slow, steady decline over the centuries and millennia. And eventually, around 1500 BC or so, much of the Saraswati had dried out. And there was a 
you know much much reduced monsoon in the region which could no longer sustain these enormous cities and all the settlements that had been that had been built up in this region so what you saw was a slow steady gradual de de urbanization and migration over a period of almost 1000 1500 years it did not happen overnight that overnight everyone decided to leave the cities no it happened slowly steadily gradually lots of these uh, the people who lived in this region they migrated eastwards northwards some of them even migrated westwards okay and it's interesting that around 5000 years before today we find the sudden influx of indian genetics in australia we also have the yamnaya invasion of europe and you also have the sudden appearance of indian cattle in the middle east region and even in egypt all of this happens around the same time around starting around 5000 years before today and it goes on almost until 1000 bc this this migratory pattern out of india and also lots of migrations within india okay so these people who were who had to migrate away from this region they settled in various parts of the world most of them came in eastwards but many of them went northwards many of them went westwards and some of them even even ended up in australia so that's what happened because of the decline in the monsoon the rivers and this region could no longer sustain such enormous cities and settlements and people slowly moved out of of this region over a period of more than 1000 years it was just very slow gradual process so they, that's why these cities eventually got abandoned and you saw a decline in all the infrastructure town planning blah 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 all that that is what happened and that's what the history i mean if you read various scientific papers dealing with individual issues you will see the pattern but our great historians don't want to write about this they don't want to speak about this they tell you a different story so that is what happened all right okay let's have some more questions <laughs> okay this is a okay this is a conversation but fog of war the fog of war is the confusion that happens when you are in the battlefield and there's this battle going on and in the middle of the battle with all the things that are flying around and you're being fired upon you're firing upon someone there are explosions everywhere things get confused and your plans may get thrown out of out of the window the communication lines may not all be open so that is the confused situation that you get when the battle starts and when you are in the middle of it that's called the fog of war okay uh Rostam Farokhzad says the Hindu kingdom of Champa which was in Vietnam built great temples with beautiful architecture and they still stand to this day in a ruined state what's our government doing to preserve them <laughs> i wish i knew uh, i think there are certain efforts being made to preserve some temples uh, first of all let's take a look at the map so that everyone understands what we're talking about we know where the indian subcontinent is which is our homeland many of us uh and then we uh let me uh, deselect this all right okay so the region we're talking about is vietnam it's southeast asia and you had this great kingdom called champa which was a uh, one of the longest 
reigning empires or kingdoms in this region almost 1500 years and for a long time they were uh, vassals of the chola empire okay and this was a hindu kingdom and they built great temples and our great architecture in this region and you have uh, the temples in mison let me see if i can find this mison vietnam mison so mison there are temples here there we go shiva temples uh mison mison i'm not sure where the temples are because i've never looked here but yeah what is this there you have it there you have it so you have these temples here these are favorite the shiva temples in this region cham as you can see much of their culture is still deeply influenced by indian culture and it is their culture it's their culture as much as ours and it's a very uh, unique localized a uh, manifestation of our culture so yeah this is the the group of temples in mison and i believe that the indian government has has asked the asi to help the government of vietnam to uh, preserve and to some extent restore these temples and i'm sure something like that is also being done when it comes to uh, the great temples in angkor wat uh, in cambodia and maybe even the great temples that still exist in indonesia so i think there is some uh some activity in this regard maybe some initiatives are being taken but uh, i'm not really clear as to what the extent of this is uh i think the government of india should definitely take a great amount of interest in preserving these manifestations of indian culture beyond the subcontinent there's so much of it in the subcontinent that we are no longer in control of vikramshila is in bangladesh there is so much in afghanistan so much in pakistan which is being actively destroyed but when it comes to these nations and cultures that are friendly still friendly to us we should certainly co- cooperate with them and help them in preserving uh these temples and other great ancient architecture uh so yeah it's something we should do but i'm not sure to what extent it is being done there is something that's being done i i know about it but uh, how far what is the extent of that i'm not sure yeah okay let us see uh i so okay another question this is my best thing did cholas spread sanskrit in southeast asia or sanskrit influenced tamil because thai and khmer scripts are descendants of tamil pallava grantha script yeah so all these scripts that you see in southeast asia whether it is the cambodian script the burmese script uh the thai and the khmer scripts and all these are all descended from various indian scripts uh and these indian scripts whether it is the pallava script grantha script or whatever script all of these scripts are descended from brahmi okay and brahmi is way older so that's how it is so we know look uh, when it comes to southeast asia let's once again put southeast asia on the map well, let's display the map so during the time of the maurya empire during the time of ashok the great our great emperor uh this region was called suvarnabhumi okay southeast asia you go to bangkok today the airport the main airport there is called suvarnabhumi airport so this region was called suvarnabhumi 
and the first contact between indian civilization and the people of this region happened at least 3000 years ago and the contact was between the great people of orisha odisha and this region so orisha had this great great maritime tradition and they had this great mercantile tradition merchants so they would send merchants and traders on ships to these regions all the way to cambodia vietnam of course myanmar thailand all of all of that and uh, you know various kingdoms were established here which was which were in indian and hindu kingdoms kingdom of funan for example the champa kingdom like we spoke about and many more many more and of course indonesia all of these regions were in, uh, were influenced so it was the people of kalinga that started this and then you a thousand years before today you had the chola conquest of this region and lots of these uh, it it the chola conquest extended all the way to the philippines so at various points in time you would have had different various scripts that were used in these regions and all of these scripts would have come from india so it's not just one script but there were multiple scripts uh there is this uh, inscription that was uh, discovered in the philippines i forget the name of the inscriptions it's on a gold plate it is in sanskrit i believe with some filipino local words or something and i'm not sure which script it is but it is definitely not the grantha script it's a different script so you had different scripts that were used at different points in time over a period of almost 3000 years at least 2500 years and the the cholas they conquered this region about 1000 years ago so before the cholas even came in, into the picture you had other scripts that were, that were being used now so the use of sanskrit in this region started with the contact from kalinga about 3000 years ago that's when it started at least at least 3000 years ago uh when it comes to the, the cholas there is absolutely no evidence that they used anything except for sanskrit because this entire region southeast asia was already very familiar with sanskrit sanskrit was the high language the prestige language across the region and the cholas also were extremely familiar with sanskrit uh and there are regions today for example in malaysia etc singapore where you have lots of tamil speaking people but those tamil speaking people migrated to these regions quite recently during the british occupation of these regions okay so there was a time when india was occupied by Brit- by the british burma was occupied by the british and much of this region southeast asia was also under british occupation that's when the british uh, transported indians as as slaves to various parts of the world and that's how many tamils got settled in this region there are tamils who have settled in myanmar as well so all of this is recent migration okay that's how tamil entered these these areas but historically it was sanskrit okay let's take another question um feminist assassin <laughs> says what do you think of the coaching mafia destroying lives of students many students are committing suicide you know the coaching mafia exists because of the education system we need to reform the education system so that this coaching mafia becomes completely irrelevant that's what needs to happen the coaching mafia is a, is a well when you have these high stakes exams which students need to pass to get a job in the government or whatever you know then you will have these coaching classes and coaching coaching mafia we need to have a better system i'm not saying do away with all the exams 
but we need a better system and i i mean i'll not go into the details right now i have at least three episodes of ask abhijit which deal entirely with education i think it's around somewhere around episode 30 so if you are truly interested in in understanding what is wrong with the education system what needs to be done and all that check out those episodes it's somewhere around episode 30 or something um check it out okay um oh what okay let's see this question by sagar is it possible human history is beyond 30 40000 years or even more with mahabharata being a major event but the west has changed the the timeline to suit them well i can only answer on the basis of evidence do we have evidence of the mahabharat well one of the evidences of the mahabharat that we have discovered in the archaeological archaeological record is the submerged city of dwarka for decades our great historians laughed at us that the mahabharata is a collection of myths it's all imagination and myth mythology it has nothing to do with the real world it's just a story that somebody came up with well in the mahabharat there is this event in which arjun visits dwarka and there is this massive tectonic seismic event earthquake huge earthquake and the entire city of dwarka collapses and is submerged under the sea okay and people laughed at that because we have a city of dwarka in western india in saurashtra is there so what are you talking about the city is there and then somebody dr sr rao of the asi decided let me let me look and beyond the shore of the coast of dwarka and see if i can find something and he found an entire submerged city there so clearly the city was submerged and then a new city was rebuilt of the coast you know on whatever land remained and they have they have done a little bit of research they've done some carbon dating and one of the pieces of wood that was dredged out of the of this submerged city it was about 8 and 1/2000 years old okay it doesn't mean the city went under the ocean 8 and 1/2000 years ago it means that piece of wood is that old but uh, so it tells you it gives you a certain date limit or date range when this would have happened so this seismic event this this event of the city sinking under the ocean happened less than 8 and 1/2000 years ago roughly less than 8000 years ago so that gives us a certain timeline within which the mahabharat would have happened okay i'm not saying it happened the mahabharat happened 8000 years ago the date is a issue of great controversy because there are so many people who come up with different dates so i'll not go into that so from the hard evidence that we have it is clear the mahabharat happened sometime in the last 8000 years we have to go by hard evidence only we cannot let our imagination run wild human history is at least 100000 years old at least it's way older than 30 40000 years uh the oldest evidence of anatomically modern humans homo sapiens uh is from northern africa algeria the cave of, cave of jebel irhud it's about how long is it how old is it about 4 lakh years 400000 years roughly i may be wrong i have not looked at it for a long time but something like that so homo sapiens has been around for uh, about that long so and and our pre homo sapiens ancestors have been around for 2 3 million years the human chimpanzee divergence happened about 4 million years ago don't quote me on this but something around so, somewhere around those lines and the chimpanzees we know genetically are our closest relatives 
and so the divergence happened around four or so million years ago and after that all the history that we have is the history of our post divergence ancestors the ancient humans so human history is very old but we have lost most of it what we know is something around the 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 good evidence we have is something that happened in the past 10 15000 years the last ice age and and after that um so the mahabharat definitely was a historical event it happened somewhere in the last 8000 years okay the the, the ramayana happened before that before the mahabharat but when exactly once again we're not sure and there are people who have their favorite dates and all that i will not go into the controversy i'm sick and tired of that fighting and bickering okay so i'm i'm not going to go and venture a date but yeah that's a deal so i don't think it's 30 40 50000 years ago some people make claims of god knows what i will not take names and i will not go into that at all but uh, from the evidence that we have it's clear the clear that the mahabharat happened somewhere in the eight, last 8000 years probably closer to today then closer to 8000 years probably uh yeah so that's the deal that's what i can tell you yash singh badoria says what's more important for winning a war technology or willingness to fight so first of all you should be willing to engage in the war if someone comes and attacks you or someone is doing something naughty they have to be dealt with so first of all first of all first of all my dear friends you need leadership a bunch of people there is no decision by consensus there is no decision through democracy okay there is decisions like these are only taken when you have good leadership uh so first of all you need leadership the right kind of leadership the leadership that has the appetite for risks and the appetite for taking hard choice decisions so that is the willingness to fight it means you have good leadership and leaders who can take hard make hard decisions secondly you can have the bravest people and you can have the largest armies that's completely useless unless you have the right technology okay so in the 21st century you don't even soon you may not even need human soldiers you will have robots they don't even they don't even look human you'll have loitering drones and all kinds of drones drone swarms and all that you'll have missiles of various kinds you will have uav uavs uh unmanned aerial vehicles once again fighter planes will be entirely remote controlled or, or or ai based and you may not need human soldiers you have those robotic dogs with machine guns on them who can go and do things so eventually it's going to be all about technology also you will have cyber war and all that but historically historically before all this technology came up you still needed human soldiers and the willingness to fight and good leadership and well trained and disciplined armies but what but when but once again if you had two forces let's say both have the same number of soldiers both are disciplined both are well trained in that case the tipping factor was the technology so that is how it goes you need great leadership you need the willingness to fight you need well trained disciplined armed forces which means they train regularly as if every day is war okay no flab no fat train every day and you need the right technology technology is always the deciding factor when you have evenly matched sides so there you are aryan vikram singh says if the harappans spoke sanskrit then why did they write in their own script and not in sanskrit and when did the devanagari script become began being used 
So understand the difference between a language and a script. A script is simply a container. It's a vehicle. Okay. Let me show you something interesting. Since, okay. Let us go to Google and do a Google search. Let me, let me show you something. Uh, where is Google? Google. Google. All right. Here we are. Uh, okay. Let me show you something. There is something called Soyombo. Soyombo script. Okay. Soyombo script is, okay, statutory warning, Wikipedia is not always reliable, but I'm going to just use it for convenience here. Do not trust everything that is on Wikipedia, especially when it comes to India. It's very biased against India. But here we are. The Soyombo script is a Mongolian script. Okay. It was developed by a Mongolian monk in 1696 to write Mongolian. It can also be write to, used to write Tibetan and Sanskrit. Okay, and this is the Soyombo script. It's actually the Soyambhu script. And one of the symbols in the script, the Soyambhu symbol, is the national symbol of Mongolia. My point is this, that a script is simply a container. It's a vehicle. It can be used to write any language, essentially. You can use a Devanagari script to write English if you want. It won't be a great fit for it, but you can do it. And today you can even write Sanskrit and Hindi text in the Latin script, the English script, right? So a script is, is actually immaterial. Sanskrit has, the Sanskrit language has, lots of scripts have been used to write Sanskrit. The Kharoshti script, the, the Devanagari script, the Sharda script, the, the Grantha script, the any script that is that exists in India from north to south can be used to write Sanskrit. So one of those scripts was possibly the so-called Harappan script. So what? So what? The Devanagari script came much later. I'm not sure when it emerged, but sometime in the last 1000 years. There have been so many scripts in India and around India. The Tibetan script, for example, it's another script that can be used to write Sanskrit. So please understand that so a specific script being used to write Sanskrit or any language doesn't mean that that, that language was prevalent or not prevalent there. A script is simply a vehicle. It's simply a container. It doesn't matter. You can use the Devanagari script to write Tamil also or Tibetan also and vice versa. You can use the Tamil script to write Sanskrit. Of course you can. So understand a script is simply a vehicle. It's simply a container. All right. And we don't know what the Harappan spoke. I believe it's most likely Sanskrit, but and it, it, it all depends on the decipherment of the so-called Harappan script. And there has been some progress on that and lots of claims. But yeah, once it is properly deciphered and it is established beyond any doubt what language it encodes, then we will know what language was spoken in those times, in that region. All right. I don't know why I get this question so often. Am I of Russian descent? I am pure Indian, bro. I am pure Indian. There's no Russian descent in me. Come on. <laughs> I don't know why people ask me this. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's. Uh, Miguel Diaz says, why can't Indians dominate uh, MMA like Dagestanis, Brazilians and, uh, and Americans? Look, in Brazil, there's a great tradition of these martial arts, gyms and all that. 
and there's a lot of awareness like in india everybody is crazy about cricket so everyone wants to be a cricketer in certain countries it's all about mma and mixed martial arts and fighting combat sports there is a craze for that so everyone wants to go into that and they have the facilities for for giving young kids the right kind of training and the good coaching and all that so who says indians can't dominate that it's not like indians have uh, inferior genes or anything i mean so if indi if if the same kind of a uh, craze for combat sports occurs in india then you will have the mushrooming of gyms and training centers all across the country right and they will go and look for kids who are good at this and then in a few years you will have an explosion of indian martial artists so that's the whole thing in india the craze is about cricket 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 so everyone wants to hold a bat or mostly it's everyone wants to bat that, that's the thing so it's it's as simple as that there is no awareness of mma in india very little today it's i think the awareness is growing i have been following mma for a long time even before anyone knew about it uh yeah so that's that's a deal so in certain nations you have this craze for mma and that's why there are those nations produce way more fighters than other countries it looks like there's an over representation of certain regions in mma it's it's all, it's because of this nothing else um um let us see there are lots of questions let me uh take something interesting uh one second let me see let me see let me see quickly i'll pick something okay let's see this question from tejas they just says it's speculated that mithani kings were of indo-aryan origin how can that be when the local population used hurrian can aristocrats and locals be of different origin think about the so called mughal empire in india babar what language did he speak doesn't even know he spoke the chagatai language chagatai which is an extinct turkic language think about the uh, what's it called the so called delhi sultanate you know when you had kings little chieftains like balban and iltutmish and that lady who was killed razia razia sultana whatever what language did they speak they spoke the chagatai language right was it an indian language it was not what did what language did the individuals like that guy aurangzeb speak they spoke persian is that an indian language it's closely related to indian languages but it's a persian language it's persian right so you have so many examples of the aristocracy the ruling class speaking one language that is completely unrelated to the language of the people they rule over a thousand years ago anatolia turkey today's turkey uh, the turks started infiltrating into this region and they established kingdoms there they spoke turkic languages the locals spoke the local anatolian language once again the same thing when the europeans conquered north america what language did the locals speak the natives they spoke the local native american languages but the people who were ruling there them spoke either french or english look at australia today what language do the language do the natives speak they speak local australian aboriginal languages but the people who are ruling over them speak a european germanic language english i can give you a million examples okay so that's how it happens so it is not speculated that the mitanni kings were of indo aryan origin it is known 
that the Mitanni aristocracy, the ruling class, was Indo-Aryan. How do we know this? Because we have evidence of this. We have a peace treaty between the Mitanni and the Hittites, which was found uh, in the capital city of the Hittites. I forget the name. Hattusa. Mm. So they found this peace treaty on a clay tablet. And in this peace treaty, to seal the treaty, a number of gods are invoked. Mitra, Varuna, and so on and so forth. All Indian Vedic gods were invoked in that. Then there is a horse training manual that was discovered in this region. Uh, the horse master who wrote this manual for training war horses, his name was Kikuli. He calls himself Kikuli the Mitani. And it's a great manual. It has been translated into English. And it is it can still be used today to train horses for war. Take a standard horse. And if you put him through this, or him or her through the entire training period, then you have a war horse, a well-trained war horse. In this training manual, which is written in the local Hurrian language, the author of this training manual, he there were certain terminologies and terms, technical terms, that he had to use to make the training manual worthwhile. But there were there were no words for th those terms in the local Hurrian language. So he had to use his own native language for that. And his native language was Sanskrit. So it's the first example we have of Sanskrit being used. Uh, it's the oldest uh, known example of Sanskrit in 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 literature, in the archaeological record, which strangely is beyond India. It's in present-day Syria. Yeah. So this guy, Kikuli, in his horse training manual, he used various Sanskrit terms because those terms do not exist in the Hurrian language. So clearly, he his native language, his, his indigenous language was Sanskrit. You know, so that's what. So we have evidence that the aristocracy of the, of the Mitannis, they were of Indian origin, Indo-Aryan origin, like they say. And the locals used the Hodian language. So that's what happened. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to the very basics now, ABCs. Are Aryans originally Indians? Or it's a statement, Aryans are originally Indians. There is no such thing as Aryans. Okay. For us in the Indian subcontinent, Arya was a term that, that denoted a civilized person. You call somebody Arya, it's like calling somebody Sir today. So a person who is well-behaved, who is civilized, who is, you know, of that sort of standard and caliber was called an Arya person. Uh, and our cousins, the Persians, who were of Indian origin and long ago, they went out of India in the aftermath of the Battle of the Ten Kings, which was actually more than Ten Kings. I'll not go into that. So then they, the Persians eventually, they went west of India and settled down where we know. I'm, I don't have to show the map for that. So they started using the term Arya as an ethnic term, as an ethnic self-designator, that we are the Arya people. Okay, But in the subcontinent, it was, it was not used as an ethnic term. It was used as a term that denoted a civilized person, a cultured person, a refined person. So that's the deal. So the Persians eventually started using Arya as an ethnic self-designator. And then the Europeans, um, in the, once they discovered India and Sanskrit and all that, then they stole the term. They stole the term. And then they created this fiction that the Aryas, the Aryans are of European Nordic origin and all that. 
So yeah, that's that's a, that's the deal with this. Okay. Um, Garvit Saini says, do you think the Indian educational institutions can match or possibly surpass global standards, possibly attracting international students here? If yes, how far off is it? You know, when I was a little kid, you used to have students who came to Indian universities, students from Eastern Asia, from Southeast Asia, students, students from Africa. So those days, there was a certain standard that the Indian education system had. And before 2004, 5, whichever year that was, before then, the IITs were often in the top 10 of uh, technological institutions worldwide. And then something happened and the education system was totally ruined. Um, so yes, eventually Indian education institutions, if we reform the education system thoroughly, they can once again be the best in the world. I mean, historically, who started universities? We did. Our ancestors did. You know, Vishwa Vidyalayas and all that. The great universities of Nalanda, Vikram, Sheila, Odantapuri, Tilhara, Takshashila, um, so on and so forth. So many. It all started for, it started in India. We are we had the best education system in the world. People from all over the world used to come to India for education. Xuanzang and so many examples. Yeah. And today what we are following is the colonial education system. It is designed to ape the West. And it's going to take time to reform that. We're going to have to reform ourselves deeply, starting with the Indian constitution and the laws and the governance system and much, much more. So, yeah, say it's going to take time, but eventually we can do it. We can be the best in the world once again. Yes, indeed. Manasi says Chagatai. Yes, that's that's indeed the na name of the language which no longer exists. It was also the name of one of Chinggis Khan's sons. His, uh, which son was it? Second son? The oldest was Jochi. Of course, his parentage was of, was kind of uncertain. The second was most likely Chagatai. The third was Ogedai. And Ogedai became the next emperor. Anyhow, yes, Chagatai is the language. Correct. Um, Pranay Kumar says, is life just about survival and entertainment? Well, that is the Charvaka perspective, Charvak perspective. You know, uh, There are various schools of thought in Indian philosophy, philosophical schools of thought. One of the schools is the Charvaka thought, Charvaka school of thought or the materialistic school of thought, which says that the world that we see is the only world that exists. And the object, the aim of life is to enjoy the fruits of the world and the resources available to you and maximize your enjoyment and pleasure and consumption and enjoyment of the worldly pleasures and there's nothing beyond that. That's the Charvaka worldview. So from that perspective, life is about entertainment and pleasure and survival. So yeah, that's a valid school of thought in Indian philosophy, even though it's the, with all due respect, the stupidest and dumbest school of thought. Uh, but yeah, so it's up to you. It's your choice what school of thought you want to follow. If you adhere to the Charvaka philosophy, then life is about entertainment, enjoyment, survival. That's it. But if you adhere to a different school of thought, then it's about something else, maybe something more than that. So it's you, it's up to you. Who am I to tell you what is right, what's wrong? You decide what's best for you in life, right? Um, okay. All right, here we go. Arjun Tiwari. Please pick me. Well, you're picked, sir. <laughs> uh, wish to know about R1B haplogroups prevalence in India. 
I did my ancestry DNA test and found that my paternal haplogroup is a subclade of R1B. Interesting. Okay. So the haplo okay, first of all, to the to everyone who's watching, in case you're wondering what's a haplogroup, a haplogroup is a bloodline. A haplogroup is a lineage. You can have two kinds of haplogroups, patrilineal haplogroups and matrilineal haplogroups. Patrilineal haplogroups are passed on. The, the genes for that haplogroup, the mutation, is passed on from father to son through the Y chromosome in your DNA. And the matrilineal ones are passed on through the mitochondrial DNA from mother to offspring. Men as well as women. Okay, A mother will pass on, pass on her, matri her mitochondrial DNA to sons as well as daughters, but it's only the daughters who pass it, pass it on to their offspring. So that's how it goes. So when a male has a child, he's not going to pass on his mitochondrial DNA to the child. Only the patrilineal DNA, the Y chromosomal DNA. So what's a haplogroup? A haplogroup is a group of individuals living today who all share a specific genetic mutation that happened in the past. Okay. So for example, you have the R1A R1A haplogroup. Uh, let's talk about a more specific haplogroup, R1A1A. That's most likely an Indian origin haplogroup that is about between 18 to 25,000 years old. And the number of people who carry this genetic mutation today, all males, they are more than a billion today. And they are found across Eurasia. A huge concentration in Europe and a huge concentration in the subcontinent. So that's what a haplogroup is. It's an extended family of individuals who all are descended from a single ancestor who was the originator of a specific genetic mutation. Now, Arjun is talking about R1B. R1B is not that prevalent in India, which is interesting. Okay, let's go and check out the map of R1B. Give me a second. R1B map. Let's go to images. Okay, let me put this on the screen. Shall I? R1B map. So where is R1B prevalent worldwide? As you can see, it's not that prevalent in, our, in India. It's kind of <laughs> it's kind of uh, greatly prevalent in Western Europe. Some of it is prevalent in, uh, as you can see, in this part of Russia. A large part, large concentration in Africa, and very less in India. Strangely enough, when you come to R1A. Like I said, it's different. Huge concentration in India, huge in Eastern Europe. So R1A and R1B are both descended from R1, the parent haplogroup. So R1, is this is the European map, but it's all across. So if you include R1A and R1B, it, it will be all across Eurasia. So like, I, like, like we just saw, R1B is prevalent in Western Europe. But it doesn't mean that it would, be, it would be completely absent in India. So Arjun seems to have a haplogroup that's quite rare in India, R1B. But that is not that surprising to me because R1B is descended from R1, which is descended from R itself. And I believe it's going to emerge soon enough that R and R1 themselves are haplogroups that originated in India, in the Indian subcontinent or nearby. So from that perspective, it's not that surprising. But yeah, it's interesting that you have a haplogroup that's kind of rare in India. The R1B haplogroup was the haplogroup that was prevalent in the majority of the Yamnaya invaders 
who invaded Europe about 5,000 years ago, four and a half thousand years ago. And that's and, and what the Yamnaya invaders did was that they completely replaced the male genetics of Europe. The female genetics persisted after the invasion, but the original male genetics were wiped out, which means this was a genocide, a population replacement event, only killing of males. Yeah, well, that's that's how history is. And the Yamnaya, the Yamnaya invaders, well, if you see their genetics, you can infer their skin color, hair color, eye color, and you will know that <laughs> it will tell you that their skin color was not white, it was light brown, light brown. Their hair color was brown, and their eye color was brown, and their hair color was dark. So that's and, and they were genetically sturdy people, roughly six feet tall on average and muscular. Yeah, so so that's the genetics that Arjun has. Nice. <clears throat> right. Let's see. Helsing Hathor says, was Nalanda University destroyed by Kilji? Uh, because some JNU professors on Twitter are saying it was Brahmins. I know that lady. Uh, yeah, I'm aware of that. Uh, that JNU lady. Uh, so some people on Twitter are saying it, it's, it was Brahmins who destroyed it. Is it just a propaganda by JNU professors? Look at the original sources. Look at what the Tibetans have written about this. Various uh, Tibetan... See, I don't have all the data right now that I can pull up and show you, but do your own research. Uh, there were various Tibetan travelers who came to India who wrote about what happened. One of them wrote... Who One of them came to India in the aftermath of the destruction of Nalanda. And when this guy comes to, to Nalanda, the university was destroyed, but there was still a single professor who was surviving and he was still taking classes. This guy, this gentleman, his name was Rahul Shribhadra, this professor. He was in his 90s and he was still trying to continue the classes and to teach students. Okay? And all these records, all these writers who came to India in the aftermath of the destruction, they all wrote about the fact that it was this guy, Bhaktiar Khilji, who destroyed Nalanda. You see, Brahmins were not warriors. Brahmins were the preservers and transmitters of knowledge. And they were also advisors of kings and all that in certain cases. How can Brahmins destroy university? So this is pure propaganda. I, I know at least one individual on Twitter who goes on and on about this. I don't know what drives these demented people. I'm not taking names, so, all right. But yeah, there you go. So, it was destroyed by Bakhtiar Khilji. And the sad thing is that nearby, there's a railway station called Bakhtiarpur that honors that, that terrorist, that monster that destroyed Nalanda. So, let's let it be very clear that Nalanda was destroyed by Bakhtiar Khilji, the Turkic invader, who had destroyed much more. And uh, when it comes to JNU, well, what can I say? What can I say? Um, okay, let's see what else. Um, Shantanu Jha says, India is weakest in its naval forces. What's your thought? Will it be able to counter China Navy force? This is a good question. It's a controversial question, but let's take it up. And there are lots of people who will disagree with me. Well, so be it. Can't please everyone. So I would not say that India has a weak Navy, but when it comes to comparing the Indian Army, the Air Force, the Navy, 
I would say the Navy is kind of kind of comparatively uh, less well equipped and funded. That's what I would say. I think there's a whole lot more that we need to do when it comes to our naval forces. Look at India's position geographically. India has a geographical location that is a gift of the gods. India dominates the Indian Ocean region. We can reach out anywhere in the in this enormous part of the world because of our great naval location, right? So India should be a great maritime power. Historically, for thousands of years, we were a maritime civilization. But today we have what? A, a navy that is not that strong. The Chinese had a very weak navy in 1990. And then they started building more warships. And it took them time to, to improve their designs. Okay? But today they have possibly, definitely, the largest navy in the world. They are churning out warships, destroyers, frigates, cruisers, whatever, submarines. Like They are churning them out like sausages. And quantity has a quality of its own. It does. Even if your designs are not the best, if you have huge numbers, it's going to overwhelm any enemy. So when it comes to the numbers, okay, the Chinese navy is way, way, way larger than the Indian navy. You can go and look up the numbers. I'm not going to do it here. The problem that the Chinese face is that they are bogged down by the they are, they are hemmed in by the island chains. There are three island chains. One is Taiwan and all that. The second is the Philippines and others. The third is Guam and uh, way, way, all that. The Mariana Islands. There are three island chains that encircle China. And there are these trouble spots from the Chinese perspective. One is a huge threat from Japan. Japan has a very scary navy, the scariest submarines, right? Uh, then you have South Korea, which is uh, a U.S. possession. So there's a huge U.S. Uh, presence over here, which is a danger for China. Then you have Taiwan, which again is under U.S. protection, a U.S. ally. So there's a problem there. So the bulk of the Chinese Navy is deployed in the Yellow Sea, the East China Sea, and the so-called South China Sea, which is actually the, actually the Champa Sea. And the Chinese are also claiming this entire South China Sea region as if this entire thing is a, is, a, is a private lake of China. So they have to deploy the bulk of their naval assets in this region. And that's why even though they have a very, the, the world's most powerful navy, this, at least numerically, they still do not pose a great threat to India as of today. As of today. They have been deploying submarines in the, in the Indian Ocean region, the Bay of Bengal. They have deployed submarines in the Andaman Nicobar Islands uh, you know, on spying missions. They have deployed spy ships to track Indian missile launches and eavesdrop on Indian uh, communications in the region. They have this port in, in Pakistan called Gwadar, which was once offered to India. India rejected it thanks to the great magnificent Mr. Nehru. And they deploy submarines there as well. So they have a presence in this region and they are slowly going to increase the presence. They also have this port in Djibouti, which I can actually show you. You know, they have a Chinese, there's a Chinese port in Djibouti. Okay, I'll not go into the details right now because it will take time. The point is they're going to increase their presence slowly. So what does India need to do? We need to increase the numbers. We need to build more warships, more submarines. We need to invest in distributed lethality and also in numbers. Quantity has a quality of its own. We need to bolster the numbers of various kinds of warships, destroyers. Uh, frigates, submarines, missile boats. Missile boats can be a deadly, potent weapon. 
you know and they're quite cheap a missile boat is very cheap i mean you can build a missile boat if you are innovative for about 10 20 million dollars which is peanuts you know and put three missiles on each boat brahmos missiles scary 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 from the opposition's perspective and you can put a hundred missile boats out there to see or at least 30 or 40 and so what india needs to do is focus on the navy build large numbers of these assets of course it's going to cost money and if you we need more nuclear submarines attack submarines uh, missile launching submarines we need conventional submarines as well see i would say india needs at least 50 submarines what how many submarines do we have that are operational today 12 13 guaranteed it's less than 20 for a nation of india's size having 12 to 13 or 15 submarines is a joke we need at least 50 ideally 100 submarines of course it's going to cost a lot of money but if you want to be safe that's what you have to do and there is this obsession here we go this is the controversial part and lots of people will disagree with me there is this obsession in the, in the indian navy for building aircraft carriers i totally disagree with that of course we have a couple of aircraft carriers good but now use the money to build more of these assets distribute your lethality don't concentrate it in one place so that's what i would say there's a whole lot that can be done and should be done and i'm sure some of it is being done but we need more we need more we always want to keep improving we always want something better and something more okay what do i think of kurd ethnicity good ethnicity indo iranian or iranian whatever you want to call it and they don't have their own nation and that's why they are persecuted by the turks by the iranians by whoever else um and you had many great kurds in the past i mean they the kurds i think they were converted to islam sometime around the time the persians were converted to islam after the uh, arabic conquest of persia which happened about i don't know 1300 years ago roughly um and the kurds also got converted and then they produced people like salahuddin ayubi and all that some of the great uh, heroes of the islamic world so yeah that's what it is so the kurds are an indo-iranian or or iranian ethnicity an ethnic group that doesn't have a nation of its own and that's why they are deeply persecuted and marginalized the turks talk about mr erdogan the president of turkey he talks about the horrific persecution of the people of gaza by the israelis what's he doing to the kurdish people by the way what is he doing isn't he doing the same persecution but no one talks about it so that's that's the way the world operates so yeah that's what okay Anitya says China has not intervened in any military conflict. They have not attacked any country in the last 50 years. On the other hand, we know how the US has intervened worldwide. Then why does China have such a bad global image? Okay. Um When was the last time they attacked a country? 1979 was when they invaded Vietnam and they suffered a disastrous defeat. 79 so that's 20 so that's less than 50 years my dear sir or lady whoever you are yeah so it's not true that china has not attacked any country in the past 50 years okay they also tried to fight india in 1987 and they were defeated okay so 
the what clash sundarong chu clash or whatever i don't remember what it was called but there was a mini war in 1987 the chinese tried a 1962 kind of thing and they were beaten back okay the chinese let me tell you they occupy tibet tibet has never been chinese they are conducting a cultural genocide in, in tibet they have banned the tibetan language all schools in in every school the kids have to learn their do their education in the chinese language so eventually it will wipe out of the tibetan language and the the, the tibetan people are not allowed to practice their culture there is a similar occupation of the east turkestan region which was never chinese again the half of mongolia is currently under chinese occupation what you see of mongolia is only half the nation you see these places these play these regions are all part of what the chinese called inner mongolia north of beijing is where inner, inner mongolia starts okay you have these mountains around that that protect beijing that have historically protected beijing if i show you the terrain you see these mountains that have historically protected beijing north of that is in inner mongolia the gobi desert so that is under chinese occupation and then you have manchuria which is not chinese again under chinese occupation the chinese are claiming the south china sea which i mean what business do we do they have being there it was historically the champa sea the taiwan is a whole different issue so the point is they are fight they are they and look at the number of border disputes they have they have border disputes with all their neighbors they're trying to bite away at little bhutan they have a huge undemarcated border with india they claim afghan territory they claim tajik territory they claim kyrgyz territory they have reopened a border dispute with russia in the east okay they have a border dispute with japan i can just go on and on how will a country like this have a good global image please explain to me please explain to me how will a nation that behaves in this manner have a good global image they use debt trap diplomacy to trap little nations like sri lanka little nations in africa they're extracting wealth you know resources out of africa which is okay which everyone does but they prop up dictatorships they trap nations in these debt traps then then take over the territory they've taken over the hambantota port in sri lanka how can such a nation have a good global image and of course of course the americans are no better they they actually are worse you are right about this you're right yeah but the americans control the global media they control hollywood hollywood look at watch hollywood movies about american soldiers and american military operations they always portray the americans as a, as a good guys right the media is entire the english speaking media the western media is entirely controlled by americans and the indian media simply copies what they write or say right so that's the deal so that's why the americans have a great reputation and the chinese have a bad reputation i'm not saying the chinese bad reputation is unearned it is well deserved yeah the chinese they deserve their bad reputation so yeah there you are okay giuseppe di fraia says what's your opinion please on indira gandhi the former prime minister who was assassinated was she a good leader or bad leader of india i know things are complex look um that's a good question she was definitely a strong leader uh she is the person the the leader who gave the go ahead for uh the liberation of bangladesh in 1971 right so definitely she did 
many great things. Of course, she believed in socialism. And uh, there's this book by Lee Kuan Yew, okay? His memoir. He has, he has There are a number of books in which you have Lee Kuan Yew speaking about various things. I don't remember which book it is, but I, I have some of those. In one of these books, he writes about in India. And he says that he visited India in the early 80s or something, okay? And he met Mrs. Gandhi and he told her that, you know, Indians who live in Singapore, they do tremendously well. They're extremely motivated. They're extremely, uh, you know, they, they, they really do well. Indians, wherever they are across the world, they are really hardworking. They're very intelligent. They always rise to the top of the society, the top stratum in the society. They're very entrepreneurial, they're very innovative. And Indians in Singapore are among the most accomplished of Singaporean citizens. So, and it's because of the way our governance is, we allow people, we encourage them to rise to the, to the fullest extent of their potential. Why don't you unleash the latent hidden power of India by reforming your economy and the nation? Why don't you do that? That's what he asked Mrs. Gandhi. Okay. And she said, this is the way India is and this is how it will be. That's how I, this is how I want India to be. So she was perfectly happy with socialism. She was happy with continuing the Nehruvian legacy. Okay. So that's, I would say, one of the weak points or, or, or if you are talking about pros and cons, that's one of the cons when it came to Mrs. Gandhi's leadership in India. But of course, she was very strong when it comes to national security. She was the one who gave the Indian army the go-ahead to liberate Bangladesh. Without her go-ahead, nothing would have happened, right? She was a hardliner when it came to combating Pakistan and all that. Of course, during her time, you had the Khalistan issue that, that cropped up and all. So there are pros and cons. Like you said, things are complex. But overall, she I would not say that she was a bad leader. Yeah? Yeah, so that's what I would say. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's... Uh... And of course, people will disagree, which is fine. You can disagree. Socialism was the need of the hour. Yeah. Okay. I disagree. I completely disagree. But yeah, there you are. The question is, what does socialism do? What happened after 1991? The India, in India was on the verge of bankruptcy. And the Indian government was forced to open up the economy and become less socialistic and more capitalistic. What happened? It totally unleashed uh, the entrepreneurial instincts of the Indians. And, you know, the Indian economy's GDP rise begins there. And after 2014, all the reforms that were done by Mr. Modi and his government, you can see the fruits of that coming in now. And you can see that India is the only economy that is not going to have a recession. It's the only economy that is projected to ever surpass the U.S. Yeah. So, what is that socialism that did that? If India had opened up its economy and, and invited investment and all that, and copied what Japan did or other nations did in from 1947 itself, then India would have been one of the top three economies in 1991 itself. So, so, so this I do not agree with, with, with respect. Um. Costa Benza say, says, will the US and Russia start nuclear testing again? What's your take on it? Um, I don't know. I think 
if one of them does it, then the other will also do it. I don't think they need to do nuclear testing because they've done hundreds, if not thousands of nuclear tests already. Their nuclear weapons are well calibrated. They know exactly how to get things done. So I don't think there's any need for them to do nuclear testing. If they do, if any of them does a nuclear test, it will be a political statement, not something that is actually needed or necessary. And if one of them does it, then the other one will also most likely do it. I think Mr. Putin has actually stated this recently in the past few months sometime, that if the US does a nuclear test, conducts a nuclear test, then Russia will go ahead and do the same. So, yeah. So I don't know if they have any need to do it, but if it happens, it's going to be a political statement more than something that happens out of technological necessity. Uh, Mohit Rana says, my haplogroup is RY7. In one of, one of your videos, you spoke about the out-of-India migration. It's the same haplogroup as the Malta boy from Siberia. Also, I'm a jart, so now you have me confused. Look! When we talk about out-of-India migration, it's one big wave or multiple big waves. But a migration is not never a linear process. You have multiple waves of migrations. And I never said, said that it's not possible that there was some migration into India. We know that even during the... Look, this, I'm not sure if the map is needed right now. We know that even during the Saraswati Sindhu era, the Harappan era, there are there is the possibility that many of the people whose bones are found in various symmetries from that time, from 5,000 years ago, many of them could have represented first-generation immigrants to India. When you have a region, a civilization, that accounts for, let's say, a half of the world's GDP, which is incredibly prosperous, technologically advanced, great standards of living, everybody wants to migrate there. That's what everyone does, which is today... Everyone wants to migrate to the US, right? Because that's the place where you have the highest standards of living and all that. So in the ancient days, it was this region, the Saraswati Sindhu region. So everyone wanted to migrate to this region. Then people would have migrated from neighboring regions. Yeah. So you will have the exchange of genetics that happens like this. So it's, and, and see, the, the haplogroup you're referring to, RY7, it's a descendant of R. R is most likely an Indian origin haplogroup. See, when it comes to the matrilineal haplogroups that are prevalent across the world, 95% of non-African females who are alive today are descended from the matrilineal haplogroups M and N. M and N. These two matrilineal haplogroups originated in the Indian subcontinent between 60 and 70,000 years before today. That's how old they are. And you will have descendants of that all across the world. So, yes, you will have relatives of the, of, of so there will be ladies in India, most of them, who will be related to ladies across the world who are not of African origin. So, that's how it is. It's, it's really complex. So, when it comes to the R haplogroups and descendants, like R1, R2, RY, whatever, these are all descended from an ancient haplogroup R, which most likely originated in the subcontinent. So if you have this boy in Siberia, this mummy who was found, who have this haplogroup, it means that further back in time, his ancestors also would have originated 
probably in the Indian subcontinent. So that's how I know it's it's very confusing. Genetics is very confusing. All these haplogroups and all this terminology is, is like that. The thing is, if you examine, it's it's about the lens that you use to examine history. Lens as in the time period. If you look at history from the perspective of the last 200 years, you will get a certain picture of history. If you examine history from the perspective of the last 1000 years, which is, which is a different lens, you will get a different image. If you look at it from the lens of the past 5000 years, you will get a different different picture. If you examine it from, a, from the perspective of the last 60, 70,000 years, you will get a whole different picture. So it all depends on which, which time period you're looking at. So this Malta boy, let me see how old that mummy is. M-A-L-T-A boy. Malta Burith culture. Okay, let me put that on the screen and we, we'll take a look at it together. Okay, so I'll once again just take a look at Wikipedia just for convenience. So this is, okay, 24, 23,000 years before present. Okay, so it's it's not that old. The R haplogroup is older than that. Uh, so there you go. See, the history we're talking, when we talk about genetics and haplogroups, we're talking about tens of thousands of years. Tens of thousands of years. So this haplogroup, which the, was found in this boy, it is a descendant of older haplogroups. Okay, and R is way older. Let let's let's see how old Wikipedia says R is. Just let me quickly go there. Uh, haplogroup R. Let's see what it says. Haplogroup. One second. Why empty DNA? I want to see. R1A, Indian origin of Patrick, oh, that's R1A, haplogroup R1A is descendant of R1, which is descendant of R. So haplogroup R is about 27,000 years old. And it's probably place of origin is probably the subcontinent or maybe Northern Asia, like they are saying, most likely the Indian subcontinent. So the haplogroup R is an ancestor of this haplogroup RY7. And haplogroup R is about 20,000 years old, at least, um, roughly, let's say. So it's older than the RY7. So that explains that explains the whole situation now, doesn't it? So it all depends on what time frame you're looking at to examine a certain issue. All right. Um, okay, Apollomi says, Saloniji, there was no country concept anywhere in the whole world. Okay, this is a conversation that's going on in the chat, but let me speak about this. The nation-state concept that we are very familiar with, we only think about, let's go to the map of the world. When we think about the world, we think about nations, we think about countries, right? We think of India as a country, we think of our neighboring countries as Pakistan and Nepal, and then we have countries, all these lines on the map de denote various countries. Historically, there were no nations. There were kingdoms, empires, and civilizations. The nation-state system is an artificial and recent concept. It dates back to the Treaty of Westphalia two, three hundred years ago. That's it. Okay? So, historically, the concept of countries and nation-states did not exist. It's an artificial concept. It was uh, This concept was created to to divide the world up for colonization uh, by Europe. It's a European concept. It's not 
global concept. But today it's it's seen as a universal concept because the whole world is currently under this system. Well, you are now witnessing the slow re-emergence of civilization states and empires. China is an empire. Okay, China is an ancient civilization about 3,000 years old. Okay, let's say 3,500 years old if you want to be nice to them. But it's an empire. Okay, Russia also is an empire, by the way. The actual homeland of the Slavic people, the Russians, is, is Western Russia. All of this that you have in Russia today, it is Siberia and Asia, all the way to the far east of Russia. Okay, So all that is imperial conquest. It's the consequence of imperial conquest. So Russia is, the, it, it carries the legacy of the Russian empire. And China is a, is a modern day empire. And the, and the US is also an empire, by the way. But we call it a superpower. So the, the term superpower is a euphemism for, the, for, for empire. So the country concept, the nation state concept is an artificial concept. It's a very recent concept. It's never been there in history. And I think it will soon disappear in the next 50 to 100 to 200 years. <laughs> yeah, that's what could happen. Saurabh says, what the, what makes Sanskrit the best natural language? What uniqueness did it have that others did not? Uh, our so-called great social reformer, Mr. Ram Mohan Roy, says it's inferior. Yes, Mr. Ram Mohan Roy has written about this. He wrote a letter to the British occupiers of India saying that Sanskrit is an inferior language and it needs to be smashed out of existence and replaced with this great superior enlightened language called, Indi called English. That's what Mr. Ram Mohan Roy wrote. He was, uh, yeah, he was greatly opposed to Sanskrit. He believed it was inferior. See, what, what's unique about Sanskrit? It's the oldest known Indo-European language. Okay, There are people who will say that no, Sanskrit is only so-and-so so years old and whatever language in the Middle East region was older, that's that's... Nonsense. Okay. Uh, yes, he was a Freemason. That's right. You got it. You got it right. Uh, let's go back to where is the question once again? It's gone. Okay. So the point is, Sanskrit is the oldest known Indo-European language. It's an extremely rich language with a ridiculously rich vocabulary. There are more than a hundred words for the term. See, in English, we have one word called love. In Sanskrit, there are more than a hundred words that can be approximated to mean love. Okay? Sneha, Prem, lots of words. So it's an incredibly rich vocabulary. And each of these terms has slightly different meanings that the English language simply doesn't have the ability to express. Uh, so yeah, it's... A, it's an incredibly rich language and that tells you how ancient it is. The older a language, the more synonyms and richness it will have and so on. So that's the thing about it. And it's got a beautiful grammar, a completely mathematically algorithmic grammar. And that was created by the great uh, Panini, of course, more than 2000 years ago. And before that, you had an older older versions of Sanskrit, like the like post-Vedic Sanskrit, Vedic Sanskrit, and even pre-Vedic Sanskrit, which we are not really... Uh, very familiar with. So, yeah, that's how it was. That's what I can say. Now, 
Um, Aryan Surti says, thoughts on Vivek Ramaswamy. Very interesting guy. He's, he's a very smart guy. He's a very young guy, first of all, Indian origin guy, Hindu guy, who speaks about the fact that he's Hindu. He doesn't try to hide that. And he's a very smart guy. I think he's planning to run for president in 2028 or beyond. Right now, he is, his aim is to become nationally relevant in the US, maybe globally relevant, and maybe, maybe run as the vice presidential candidate for Donald Trump. I think that's his objective. And you will see that he makes it a point to never criticize Donald Trump ever. And he goes after people in his own party and in the Democrat, Democratic Party. So very smart guy. He's playing the long game. He's extremely articulate. He's a great speaker. He's always on the point. He can demolish any stupid question or argument. So yeah, very interesting guy. I think he's, he's hoping to run as the vice presidential candidate, as, as the partner for Donald Trump in Donald Trump's presidential bid in 24. So that's what I think he's doing. Very interesting guy. Okay. Um, uh, Damini says, there was no life on Earth for a long time. Is it possible that the Moon, Mars, and other planets on which we are trying to search for life, these planets are facing similar atmospheric conditions in the present? So the Moon is not a planet. It's a moon. It's a satellite of the Earth. And the most prevalent theory that we have of the origin of the Moon is that in the early phase, in the very early period of the solar system, when you had the planets were still like molten blobs of rock or thereabouts. So in the very early phase of the solar system, there was a collision between Earth and another planet, which no longer exists. So these two planets collided. It was a glancing collision and lots of debris were thrown into orbit around the Earth. And within a month or two, this debris, all this, all this debris, they coalesced together and formed what is now the moon. Okay, so the moon is a satellite of the Earth. It's tidally, tidally locked in... Uh, that's, that's a different story. Uh, when it comes to Mars, we know that Mars once had... So how old is the solar system? Four something billion years old. And we know that life has existed on Earth, unicellular life, at least 2.7 million years before today. Yeah. We know that Mars once had flowing water. We know that Mars once had oceans of H2O, water. Okay, So Mars was very different in the past. And what happened to Mars is that it is a smaller planet. So it, it lost its magnetic field because the inter interiors of, of the planet cooled down. And in, 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 for Earth, we have this huge molten core, which is mostly metallic, nickel, iron. And it, it has very different properties from metal that we have on the surface. It is under extreme pressure and it is charged and it is these moving charges that, that cause the, that create the electromagnetic field of the Earth, which shields our atmosphere from solar radiation, from the solar wind. Mars lost its magnetic field because of which the solar radiation was able to impact the atmosphere and the oceans of Mars and stripped all this away over a long period of time. So that's why Mars lost its atmosphere and its oceans. We still have frozen water on Mars, lots of it, below the, below the surface and also in the polar regions, right? So it's possible that there may have been life on Mars a billion or so years before today, or maybe even before that. It's possible. And we may have found some circumstantial evidence for that. Yeah? So 
So Mars was very different in the past. Today it's a, it's a mostly dry planet with a thin atmosphere. Uh, so yeah, it's it's changed over time. And the Earth also will change over time. The next few billion years, the Earth will be very different from where it is today. And the Sun itself will be different. So that is how it goes, you know. The solar system will evolve. The Sun will eventually become a red giant. It will engulf the orbits of Mercury, Venus and the Earth. Only Mars will be left out. And eventually the Sun will shed off its ex uh, external layers when the nuclear reactions fizzle out. And it will create a big nebula around itself. And what will be left at the center where the sun is, is a white dwarf. Okay, And the earth will be burned to a cinder. That's what will happen eventually in about 5 billion years from today. So that's how a stellar system typically evolves over time. Okay. Any updates about World Cup finals and Khalistani threats? I have not heard of any Khalistani threat to the World Cup final. But yeah, the final match is tomorrow. So yes, go India. We're going to win. We're going to win and we're going to take revenge on the Australians for 2003. I watched that final match, 2003. Yeah. And it was not a good experience. So this is a very different team India this time. So I, I hope we win tomorrow. I follow sport. I am a huge uh, sport fan. I Not just cricket, but I watch hockey. I watch martial arts, football, all of that. Kabaddi. I like Kabaddi as well. Great sports. So I hope India wins tomorrow. Yes. Okay. Um, uh, what else do we have? Okay. Manoj Kumar says, why can't we state facts as our opinion on Mr. Gandhi in CBSE board exams? Why would we have to only praise him just to get marks? Facts are facts and they aren't, even if they aren't written in, history, in, in CRT textbooks. Facts are facts, but your examiner is going to fail you if you write what is not in the textbooks. That is the problem with the Indian education system. You may know, you may have knowledge that is superior to what's written in the textbooks, but you have to pretend to be stupid and not know anything and only write in the exams what's in the textbook. I have, I have faced such idiotic teachers. I mean, their slavish devotion to textbooks is so incredibly frustrating. I remember which standard was I in? Seventh or something? I don't know which standard it was. We had the subject called science. Okay, science. In, 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 there was a science textbook. And there was some kind of scientific circuit diagram or apparatus or something which uh, was part of, which was in one of the lessons. And I that, that came up in the question. So I drew the diagram from my memory and my understanding. And I drew it in a different way from what was in the textbook. And my teacher, she gave me zero marks. She said, it's not exactly as per what is in the textbook. It was completely correct from a physics perspective. But it was not exact an exact copy of, of what was in the textbook. And she gave me zero marks for that. She was stupid. Okay? This teacher, I mean, there are so many ex examples and incidents like everybody, all of, all of us would have. So we have to understand that our teachers and our education system are still fully colonized. Okay. And if you write truths, then you're going to be failed in the exams. So that is where we are today. So if you want to, so you can either fight the system and be beaten by it, or you can use the system to get ahead in life and then speak the truth on a bigger platform than in the exam. 
what's the point of trying to speak the truth in the exam you won't get marks and you won't get what what the what your objective is which is your degree or whatever so i think we have to be realistic and practical in life we know what the truth is but treat the edu- education system and exam and exams as a tool that will allow you to get ahead in life yeah so it's the way it is ideally you should be able to state facts but that's the way our system is it's still very backward what's the point what's the point so long ago it doesn't matter anymore there are a million teachers like that you all have to deal with them yeah uh i mean <laughs> okay last time i didn't answer you see during a live stream i get maybe 2 3000 questions at least i can answer 20 or 30 of them so i apologize to those of you whose questions i am not able to answer i really appreciate that all of you ask so many questions but this is what happens do you believe the concept of satyuga in our solar system was closer to a superstar super sun all that look the yuga system is very interesting okay um the, uh, was the solar system close to a superstar there have been stars that have come close to the solar system okay in the past i mean about 80000 years ago there was a star called barnard star which is right now very dim and faint but it was once it once passed very close to the sun like just a, few, a handful of light years away it may be even the it may be even interacted very closely with the solar system and it may have influenced certain events in the solar system so these things happen it was not a superstar it's just a regular star uh so it's happened it it would have definitely happened in the past that our solar system came in came in close proximity with other stars and it would definitely have affected the evolution of our solar system so that is what i can say about this entire matter but that's an event the the, the nearest event was about 80000 years ago so that is way 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 before any of these uh, historical events that we can think of like the ramayan mahabharat etc happened so so i'm not sure if there is any correlation mahfuz roma Ra, mahfuz rahman sorov says where did europeans come from before the indians invaded them was iranian neolithic farmers originally from iran or were they also out of out of india migrants that is still an open question okay there is a genetic research that's being that is currently being done within india outside of india there is the what golden crescent theory or something fertile crescent or something some the latest uh, one of the latest papers which says that the uh, origin of the indo european languages was further east maybe in present day iran so earlier it was eastern europe then it became central asia now they have moved to persia give it a decade it will move into india that's the thing okay so uh, it, it, it's it's a very complex topic where did europeans come from before indians invaded them look about 10 15000 years ago the people who lived in europe had dark skin and blue eyes weird okay the the genetic mutation for fair skin and blue eyes and uh, sorry the genetic mutation for fair skin and red hair or blonde hair it only originated about 10 or 12000 years before today and that too originated most likely 
in either Persia or India. Okay. So the fair skin that we see in Europeans today, it came from further east, but it suddenly somehow became more prevalent there because of whatever reasons. Uh, so yeah, the ancestors of today's Europeans obviously uh, are a mixture of the females who lived in Europe long ago and the Yamnaya invaders who came from further east, let's say. Okay. So yeah, it's 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 all of this is still a subject of research, great amount of research. There is still, from a genetic perspective, a great lack of clarity, and this is something that's going to keep on. Uh, research is going to continue. It's going to take maybe 10, 20, 30, 50 years, perhaps, to have way more clarity on this matter. But it's clear that a large amount of the genetics of Europe came from further east, most likely from the Indian subcontinent. The genetic mutation for fair skin also emerged, emerged about 10 or 12,000 years ago, most likely in the subcontinent. But most of it, most of that, those genetic components went further west into Europe. The Iranian Neolithic farmers are, are, are now supposed to be the originators of the Indo-European languages. Well, that is still a work in progress. So, it's going to take time to get more clarity on that. Um, were they out of India migrants? Time will tell. Still unclear. Okay, we have crossed two hours, almost two hours, ten minutes. I'll take one last question. Um, okay, what shall I take? What shall I take? What shall I take? Um, Vastavik says, Were the Khaljis, Haptalites, Turks, or Afghans? They were Turks. The Haptalites, the Shweta Hunas, they came, they invaded, they were nomads who most likely originated further east from India. And they tried to invade India about 1600 or 1700 years before today, during the end phase or the second phase, latter phase of the Gupta Empire. And at the same time, they were invading Rome successfully, the Roman Empire. When it comes to India, they kind of failed. But of course, after the Gupta Empire declined, the Heptalites were able to, the Shweta Hunas were able to conquer northwestern India, which is present-day Afghanistan and Gandhar and all that. And they became Indians. They became Hindus. And some became Buddhists. And then they defended India from the Turks, the Hindu Shahis. Yeah, so the Khaljis were, and Afghans, well, the Afghans were also Indians, Gandhar, right? So the Khaljis were Turks. They were neither Heptalites nor Afghans. They were Turks. All right, that is the last question for today. I apologize to those of you who have asked so many questions and I was not able to answer them. Apologies, but thank you for all the questions and we will keep on doing this and I'll I'll hopefully answer everyone's questions eventually. So thank you for watch. Uh, thank you so much for watching. And I will see you in the next session. Take care. And like I always say, keep raising your standards and keep working hard into reaching your true potential. Thank you so much. And I will see you next time. Have a good day. Good night, wherever you are. I'll see you later. Thank you.